Good morning, everybody. Hey, I uh, wanted to just take a moment to kind of explain this setup that I've got going this morning. Uh, yesterday was Sunday. Um, we came in early in the morning and found that our this room had no heat and uh, at the moment still has no heat. So I'm kind of freezing in here. But uh, yesterday we didn't want to expose our people to this cold. So we moved everybody over to our fellowship hall and we did our service over there. And in doing so, it was a, still a wonderful day. We had a great time together, good, good crowd and, and good study. Um, but it was different for our folks. And in the exchange, uh, we had some technical difficulties and we were not able to record the message. But as I was thinking about you know, that, um, I just hated for us to not have this text discussed and, and preached in our series. Uh, even for the people who, who normally watch our service from home, uh, wouldn't have an opportunity to see this message. And so I'm just recording it now, uh, just me and you, uh, so that you could have at least this text. This is one of the most important texts in Ephesians. And I hated for us to not have some sort of recorded uh, version or message that was preached yesterday. So I'm going to go ahead and just preach this to you and speak with you, uh, just like it's me and you. But this is the reason we're doing that. So we'll get this uploaded today, and hopefully we can have this at least in our queue and uh, be a part of our, our series where people can go back and watch it if they want. Uh, if you were watching last week, we talked about the fact that God has given us different responsibilities. Um, God has given us individual responsibilities for unity in the church. God has given us uh, corporate realities of the fact that he is one. There's one baptism, one church, one Lord, all these wonderful realities of who God is, of unity. And yet he calls us to individual responsibilities of unity. So we ought to be a unified church. And then at the end of our passage, he goes back into individual gifting. It says in verse 7 of chapter 4 of Ephesians that we've been each given these gifts. And uh, those gifts are to serve other people. Those gifts are not for us. They're for others. And part of that gifting is, is for our unity and for our maturity in Jesus as we disciple one another to Christ. So, you know, sometimes uh, people may think that a church organization is just a bunch of professionals who come together and uh, they call all the shots and, and all you have to do is just show up. And that is absolutely not the case. <laughs> we are in this together. We are the church and uh, I'm afraid the church has made the mistake at different times of, of feeling more staff-led or senior pastor-led. And that could not be further from the biblical truth of what the church is or how the, how the church ought to be uh, run in a sense. There is a shared leadership that we're going to look at today that I want us to, to understand that we as a church value very highly. And I wanted us to explain that through this text today. Uh, when you think about the grace gifts that Paul talks about in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 7, that we've all been given these gifts in the sense that we all need each other to become the disciples that God wants us to be. When you think of that, does it cause you to have a deeper importance, a, a, a bigger weight of why the church is needed, why you're needed as part of the church? Because you've been given specific gifts. I've been given specific gifts. Together we care for one another and we build ourselves up as the church together. That is uh, what Paul's trying to say to us here in chapter 4. So we're each responsible for each other's spiritual growth and maturity in many ways because of this gifting. And I hope that the thought of that is 
uh, helps you to be more intentional about meeting with your triad, meeting with your city group, being with us uh, for our service on campus. Anytime we can gather and encourage one another towards discipleship, towards a love relationship with Jesus, that is, that is God's heart for us and uh, part of why we've been gifted to do what we do. I hope it gives more weight to the uh, elements and our rhythms of life as a church. So God has not only gifted each believer with different gifts, but he's also given the gifts of leadership to the church. And that's what we're going to start with uh, this morning. I want to talk about three specific things. I want to talk about gifted leadership in the church. I want to talk about the fact that uh, Paul says that we all need to grow in our maturity in Jesus or be discipled towards maturity in Jesus. And then lastly, I want us to see a pretty big element that the Big C Church has missed for a long time, and that is that uh, speaking truth in love is a key factor in maturity in Jesus. So look with me uh, at our text this morning, Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 16. says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is properly working, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me this morning as we get into this text? Father, we love you. God, we are so grateful for your church. So thankful, Lord, for what you're doing here at South City and our people in us as a family. God, I pray that you would continue to teach us through your word in Ephesians uh, all these wonderful blessings and doctrinal truths that are so deep and yet also, now that we're getting into the second half of the letter, God, teach us what it means to walk in those and to be the people of God you're calling us to be. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would move uh, beyond this medium of video uh, to the hearts of those who are watching. And I pray that this would um, be an explanation of this text, that we would learn in it together as a body. And, uh, Father, that you would grow us. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would um, be glorified that you would increase in this time, Lord, and that I would decrease and that you would help me to stay out of your way and what you want to teach your people through your word. Love you, Lord, and uh, we give you this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So Paul has given us, uh, even as I prayed there, some incredible insight about the church in, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, everything that you can remember from, from these messages up until now the fact that we're so blessed, the fact that we as a body of Christ, we are called saints. We're no longer sinners, but we're saints. And even our position is with Christ, seated in the heavenlies, the Bible says in chapter 2. Um, he says that we have a glorious inheritance with the saints. So the church not only will worship and be a blessing to each other here on earth, but even in heaven for all eternity. Uh, so we have that to look forward to. There's so much power that Paul is trying to explain to us that we have in a resurrected Jesus. And he says that he is the head of the church. So and it lists all the different uh, aspects 
Uh, Paul lists 15 different de uh, descriptors of the power that he has, Christ has, and the very last one, almost as if to say it's the most powerful and most important, is that he is the head of the church. So we've learned so much about the church. The fact that the church is uh, a mystery, that it's this family that's been brought together from Jews and Gentiles, very different in culture and race and, and traditions, and yet we've been brought together to be a new humanity, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're to be a new man, literally uh, a family together, one through the death of Jesus on the cross, that together we are now the household of God. We are this place where God longs to dwell with his people. We're, we're told that Paul has been given this incredible um, mystery and this incredible plan for this mystery, which is the church, uh, people brought together from different cultures. Paul has been given this incredible plan to, uh, uh, to show the world what the church is to do, what the church is to be about. And so this is an incredible moment, and this is something as a church we need to understand that it's kind of mind-blowing. I'm still trying to raise, um, understand it with my own mind, but Paul says that it's through the church that God wants to make his manifold or his multicolored, multicultured wisdom known to all the world, that he wants to use this mystery of these cultures coming together, loving one another and being like Christ. He wants to use them for his glory in the world. And in fact, not just in the world, in all of the universe, so that uh, rulers and authorities, spiritual rulers and authorities, talking about angels and demons even, understand God's plan through Jesus Christ and the gospel through all the universe. That's going to be made known through the church. So we have an incredible uh, mission. We have an incredible purpose. And so Paul has sp spoken on all these different aspects of why we exist, what the church is to do, and what the purpose of the church is. And then we have this beautiful prayer of Paul in chapter 3 of Ephesians, where he prays for maturity for the church. It's beautiful. It's almost a very fatherly prayer. You can tell he, Paul spent three years with the believers in Ephesus, and this is for Ephesian churches and believers around Ephesus. And he says, Lord, grow them in discipleship. Grow them to know you from the Spirit's moving in them to Christ, Christ dwelling in their hearts for their foundation, the rooting that they have, to their knowledge, and, and even the experience of your love that surpasses knowledge. Paul just goes on in this beautiful prayer about spiritual maturity. And so today we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about spiritual maturity and how we get that. And one of the things that we see in that is that we're, we're, we're united and gifted uh, together and that it's on us to help each other mature in Christ. And so one of the gifts that God has given the church are leaders. And so I want us to see that of a high value for South City Church is shared leadership. Uh, we believe very clearly that, that scripture doesn't give us a plan for a one man leader sort of uh, model for the church. And today we're gonna look at one of those key texts that talk about shared leadership and why it's important uh, to, to have this understanding as a church. It's so needed. Many men should lead uh, the church, and there are other, many women should be leading. We have leading men and leading women with different gifts leading the church. So let's look at our text today. We're going to break it down a little bit. The first thing we're going to look at is gifted and shared leadership. Gifted and shared leadership. It's a high value for us, and we think it is even taught in the New Testament. So Ephesians 4 verse 11, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds 
and teachers uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. Paul wants us to see here this value of shared leadership. This is many different people. And I think Paul is thinking even of specific people. When he thinks of apostles, he's thinking of himself. He, he, he's an apostle. He's thinking of Peter. He's, he's thinking of other leaders, other disciples that were made apostles. There were only 12 of them. There will always only be 12 uh, capital A apostles. You might remember me talking about a capital A apostle is someone who has been with Jesus and been sent by Jesus. There are no more capital A apostles. There, there's a purpose for that, right? They were given these incredible gifts of healing and these different gifts of prophecy. We're going to talk about that. But when the apostolic age ended, when the canon of scripture was closed, we, we have no more capital A apostles. However, the church still needs the gifting of apostolic ministry. And so there's a kind of a twofold approach that we're going to look at this scripture today. Number one, who are these leaders? And number two, what is the function? We don't have capital A apostles anymore, but we should still have apostolic function in our body and in the church if we're going to be a healthy church. So apostles, let, let's, let's see what we're talking about. We're talking about capital A apostles. Paul mentions uh, apostles and prophets in a few different places as very foundational for the church. And we see that uh, just a couple of chapters previous to this, Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20. I want you to look at that with me very quickly. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Right? So there are no more 12 capital A apostles, but we should still have the apostolic function in the church. What are we talking about here? Well, in this text in uh, Ephesians 2, I believe Paul, what Paul's saying about um, the foundation of apostles and prophets, I think he's talking about God's word here. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, in, in essence, the, the Old Testament books were written by, by prophets. So we have the foundational truth of this prophetic word called the Old Testament, the Bible. Uh, in the New Testament, the apostles, for the most part, write the New Testament, right? So uh, we have the foundation of God's word. That is part of being apostolic, is having a foundation on the truth of God's word. So I think that's what he's speaking of. Um, generally speaking, I think he's speaking about the fact that the word apostle means uh, to be sent, a sent one or a messenger. And so very generally in, uh, speaking, I think he's saying for, for all churches, we need to have an apostolic uh, aspect or, or function, which is to trust the word of God, to, to live by that word that has been given to us by apostles and prophets, but also to be sent on mission, uh, to be willing to, ex to risk the expansion and the establishment of the church of Jesus. Those are apostolic functions that we as a church continue to have. The next, the next uh, office that he speaks of is a prophet. Now, prophets are in the Old Testament and they're in the New Testament as well. I don't think they changed that much from the Old Testament to the New Testament in essence, but we don't have any more prophets either. Uh, there are people that think they're prophets, I think. There are people who say the Lord said, but um, that's a dangerous thing to do. And I, I personally believe that prophets uh, ended with the canon of scripture. 
but we do have prophets in the New Testament just as, if, uh, just as we do in the Old Testament. So look with me in Acts 21, verse 8. You might remember a guy by the name of Agabus. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. We had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while we were staying for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound it around his feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. You might remember Agabus is also the same guy that, that foretold um, the famine in Judea. Well, by understanding the famine was coming to Judea, it's one of the reasons Paul goes on a missionary journey. And you might remember he collects all this money from these Macedonian churches that he had started. He wants to take a collection of money to Jerusalem and Judea to bless uh, the church there, which is a beautiful picture of churches blessing other churches. Well, that was kind of started by this prophecy of Agabus. It's an incredible thing that we had uh, men and women who could prophesy. Um, in fact, if you look in that text, it says that uh, Philip the Evangelist had four daughters who were also prophets. So that was, uh, it wasn't gift, you know, wasn't just men or, or, or women. It was both men and women in the prophecy thing. But um, just like the capital A apostle, we no longer have prophets that can foretell the future. Um, instead, the church ought to take the function, the prophetic function here, and be able to do another aspect of what prophets did. See, prophets not only told what was going to happen in the future, they spoke God's word from God's mouth to God's people. So as I teach even today on this video, there's an aspect of this that is prophetic. My hope is that I'm taking God's word and I'm giving it to God's people. I hope there's also an another aspect. It's not foretelling, but it is forthtelling. In the church, we need to be uh, forth-telling, speak the truth, be laser-focused in the truth that we speak, and it needs to be edifying, it needs to be truthful, it needs to be loving, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, but there is absolutely a function of prophet that is still used in the church, um, and so those gifted with the ability to hear from God and predict the future have passed, but the general sense of someone speaking the truth forthrightly by applying God's word to God's people has to continue to function in the church, in a prophetic function in the church. So then we get into the last three offices that Paul mentions. Uh, he says evangelist. Um, you're probably familiar with evangelist. Even in the text in Acts 21, we talked about uh, Philip, the evangelist. They even attached to his name evangelist. Philip was such an incredibly gifted evangelist that he had an ability to speak to crowds and explain the gospel of Jesus so that people got it, were, were moved, and, and were saved. It's a beautiful gifting, and uh, some of you may have that. It's wonderful. I'm so glad that you do. Um, we know of other contemporary examples of evangelists. Um, Billy Graham, what an incredible gifting of evangelism. I think about Luis Palau. I think about others that have been gifted in such an incredible way um, to tell the truth of who Jesus is um, and to give his gospel. Well, today in the church, um, we, should, we, we better have some evangelists. In fact, God has sent all of us um, on mission to, to give the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus to the world. 
the Bible here says that some have, have the gift of evangelism. In other words, some are going to be gifted. It's going to be easy for them. And some, the rest of us, we may have to work at it. So if you don't have a gifting, I pray that you have a grit to learn what it means to be an evangelist, to, to study, to show yourself uh, ready to give uh, a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus, as Peter says. So, yes, evangelists. So we got apostles, prophets, evangelists, making Jesus known, being sensitive to the lost. Then we have the next office, which is shepherd. Now, these next two offices really can go together. They could really be uh, kind of like shepherd slash teacher. Um, they really are the same thing. You can interchange these titles, shepherd, teacher, pastor, elder, bishop even. Um, those are sort of kind of in the Greek, they, they really have a very similar function. They're kind of the same thing. You're interchangeable words. Uh, but as you think about a shepherd, what does a shepherd do with sheep? He wants to make sure that they're fed. He wants to make sure that they're protected. He wants to make sure that, that uh, they get where they need to be going. In the same way, as a shepherd of the flock of, of Jesus, I do the same thing. I, I want to make sure that you're fed spiritually from God's word. I want to make sure that you're protected. We, in fact, it's not just me. It's a whole group of elders that we have at South City that we're praying for you. We're seeking uh, God's protection over you and best for you and making sure that all of us as the body of Christ are moving in the direction God wants us to go. That's the role of a shepherd. Um, but all of these roles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, all have to have the ability to teach. We, we all have to have the ability to, to share what God is doing in us. I love the way Peter uh, exhorts elders in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I said this yesterday in our service, and I wanna say it again this morning to you. We have amazing elders. The elders at South City Church are literally some of my heroes in life. They are godly men who love you. They love their families. They love Jesus with all their hearts, and they are good men to follow. And I'm so grateful for the giftings that they have uh, and thankful for what we as a church have in them. So here's these apest gifts. That's a term you might hear at different times. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, apest. I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's doing a few different things. You can think of it like in three layers. Number one, we have a foundation of God's word and truth. The apostles and the prophets. The prophets from the Old Testament wrote the Old Testament. The apostles in the New Testament uh, write the New Testament. So we have the foundation of God's word. There's also biblical examples of these offices in the New Testament. Paul's writing, he's thinking maybe of himself or Peter or John as the apostles. Uh, he's maybe thinking of Agabus as a prophet. He's maybe thinking of Philip as an evangelist. He's maybe thinking of Timothy as a shepherd, as Timothy shepherded the churches of Ephesus. He's maybe thinking of, um, the last one is a teacher. He's maybe thinking of Apollos. You know, even in Corinthians, <laughs> Paul makes a comment like, you might prefer Apollos, you might prefer me. You know, he's talking about the gifting. And he's like saying it doesn't matter because we're both in Christ. The hope is that we can teach you something that, that you would remember and live by. So here's what's important to remember. The function of these 
offices we need represented in our church, not just in our elder team, not just in the leader, higher leadership, so to speak, of the church. Throughout all the church, we need to see these giftings for other elders, for other teachers, for other people being raised up in ministry. And I just want to give a, a, a recap of what these giftings, the functions of these giftings do. So if we're apostolic, it means that the word is foundational to us. We're willing to risk uh, and be missional for the, for the gospel of Jesus to go forth. To be prophetic means to be able to speak truthfully, forthrightly, applying God's word. If we are evangelists, we need to be willing to share uh, the gospel of Jesus, to be sensitive to a lost world. Uh, if we are shepherds, we need to be nurturing and caring, meeting needs, being pr protective. If we're teachers, we need to have the ability to rightly divide the word of truth, the full counsel of God, the Bible says and to help people grow, I want to see them grow in their relationship to Jesus. So I think a big thing that God's trying to say to us in this text, the first part here is he's not given us one leader. God has not given us one leader. In fact, we even see throughout the New Testament as Paul is planting churches, he is appointing elders, it says, plural. Appoint elders in each town. There is, a, there is a, uh, an aspect of shared leadership that is a value that we need to see here scripturally and live out uh, locally, even in our own body, and we do. So there are many leaders who are gifted with different giftings. I like uh, what uh, Kent Hughes says in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, this is a watershed text for the doctrine of the church. It effectively eliminates the traditional model of the local church as a pyramid, with the pastor perched precariously on its pinnacle like a little pope in his own church while the laity are arrayed beneath him in serried ranks of inferiority. It also shoots down the model of a bus in which the pastor does all the driving while the congregation are passengers slumbering in the peaceful security behind him. That is not the church. That is not the picture of the New Testament church. The picture of the New Testament church is one where we are all together. And Paul gets into that here in our next part of our text. Look with me in verse 12, Ephesians 4 and see that, that Paul wants us to move in discipleship towards maturity in Jesus. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You know, I, I, I asked this question yesterday. Does that word equip sound familiar to those of you who are uh, part of South City? In the last six weeks, we've started a program um, really at the best time we can have a service at 11 o'clock. We moved our normal service from 1030 back to 930. It's over by 1045 and we've taken our best time to create a new space, a new rhythm in our church called equip and that that service it's it's really just a teaching time where we do 25 minutes of of uh, teaching from the word and then we do uh 25 minutes of table discussion and practice about what it means to be disciples and and uh, disciple makers and then we come back and we share some things together we, we spend time praying and then then we leave but that is the best time given to disciple makers in our church that's a big change that we made that comes from this text. We want to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is our heart. Many times and for so long, the traditional church has tried to do a service and we think, well, I sure hope the people got what they needed. 
to live this Christian life and to be the disciple makers they need to be. And it, it's just not enough, friends. It's just not enough. And so we decided we would move the service back, still have it, still glorify the Lord, still worship together and preach, but give our best time to training disciple makers and equip them for the work of the ministry, which is everybody in the church who is saved and uh, called to that, right? Which is everyone who knows Jesus. So I want to get into this text a little bit. I want to show you this graphic here because for too long, the church uh, has looked like this. Uh, you can see in the graphic that there's a lead pastor or a senior pastor, and just below him are a few staff members that have different groups of people or specific responsibilities. And then below them is just this whole huge bunch called the church. And the point being that it is the pastor's job and maybe a few staff to care for the whole church, but that is not the biblical representation of what we're called to do in the church, to care for the church, according to this scripture. No, we, it should look more like this next example. It should look like uh, elders at the bottom. And they're at the bottom for a reason. The Bible calls them, uh, in the Greek, it's doulos. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a servant, a bond slave, somebody who's given up his rights to serve the many. That's what an elder does. And so these elders on the bottom are the bottom tier of service, serving with their hearts and lives, training leaders just above them, disseminating who they are and, and discipling the people that are just above them, like city group leaders and other leaders in our church. And then together, all of us, we're all saints. We're all caring for the rest of the body in our triads, in our city groups, in our disciple-making conversations. This is who the church uh, should be and what the church ought to look like. It's a better representation of what the Bible calls the church to look like. And so that's what we're trying to become with all that we are at South City. So what does it mean for uh, the saints to do the work of ministry? Well, it means that we all have a responsibility. If you go back to verse 7, it says that we've all been given unique gifts. And now it says, well, we've been given those gifts for a specific responsibility, to build the body up. That is the reason we need to build the body of Christ up in maturity, in discipleship. He, he gives some uh, qualifiers. Paul says, until we attain the unity of of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The word attain in the Greek means to meet up to. You know, we take our girls sometimes to uh, Disney World or, or Six Flags or some kind of a fun park. And uh, they're taller now, but they used to be smaller. And you know, they have to stand up straight and try and measure up to a certain line on a board in case they were gonna ride the ride or not. And I don't know how many times we've watched Daisy and Joey both weep because they, they weren't tall enough to ride the ride. And this is the same kind of idea with the word attain. Jesus is saying, until we can reach what is expected, until we can grow up to the level that, that you need to grow into. And what that level is, is a unity of the faith. That's the first thing he mentions. It's important that we believe the same things. A unity of the faith is the same thing as saying that we agree to a body of doctrine. At South City, we have beliefs, just as any church does. We have a statement of faith that you can find on our website. We also have a partnership covenant. A partnership covenant is not extra biblical. It's only scriptural things that we've taken from the word and pulled out into a covenant. And we say, we wanna live as a family based on these biblical truths. And this is what we covenant to as partners to one another. And then there's a section that says, this is what the elders covenant to, to care for the flock. And so that is, that, those are some of the uh, 
body of doctrine that we believe. It's important that we believe the same things because if you don't, then there's just infighting and there's just dissension and narratives that don't honor Christ or one another. And so Paul's saying, when we begin to mature, then we're gonna have a unity of what we believe. Our body of doctrine is gonna be the same, okay? So then he also says that we will uh, have a knowledge of, of Christ, the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, he's just talking about salvation, a life in Christ, uh, the ability to know Jesus. That, that's what he's speaking of. You might remember back in Ephesians 2, we talked about the fact that um, these two cultures, this mystery of Jews and, Jew, and Gentiles coming together is the mystery of God. It's the mystery of the church. Uh, and when they come together, Paul says, God's created a new man, literally a new humanity. That's the, our, our, our cultures, our race, those things are secondary to what's primary, which is our life and identity in Jesus. So we've created, God's created a new man in chapter two. Over here in chapter four, he says, that man ought to grow to full, mature manhood. See, we, we need to grow up. We need to attain what it means to walk in Christ's likeness. And we do that through discipleship. Also notice Paul in his hyperbole, he always gives all these different descriptors. He gives, look how many descriptors he gives for growth when he says mature is one, uh, mature manhood. Then he says until we reach, reach is one. The measure, measure is one. Of the stature, stature is one. Of the fullness, fullness is one. Paul's trying to say here, we got a lot of work to do because we got to get to the fullness, the measure, the stature of Christ. That is what we're longing to become. That is who we want to be like. Very simply put, friends, in the church, we need to seek that each of us look like Jesus, that each of us is moving in a direction to be like Jesus. That is uh, Paul's heart here in this text. And he says, if we don't, we're going to be childish. You know, uh, when, I, when I think about the way he talks about having childish faith um, or, or acting like a child, I can't help but think about the other phrase that is used in, in the word a lot, which is childlike. Being childlike is a lot different than being childish. Childlike is used in the reference to trust. It's almost like a child raising his arms to be held by a stranger that he doesn't know. There's a childlike faith that we as believers need to have and walk in that's beautiful, simple, and trusting. But we don't need to be childish in our faith. Paul says if we're childish, then all kinds of stuff is going to happen in our lives. And, and he, he gives this... Um, differentiation, if you will, from being mature or being childish. He uses the contrast to show, don't be childish, be mature. Because if you're childish, some things can happen in your life. You can become deceived. You become deceived by false doctrines, by human cunning, by craftiness, uh, deceitful schemes. The enemy wants to, to affect what you believe in so many ways. I can't tell you how many friends I have that have fallen away to false doctrines, false belief. And it breaks my heart. There've been so many who have been deceived and it shows that their discipleship level was one that was childish. It wasn't mature because they began to fall for things that weren't uh, of God. Um, another thing I think that's important for us to see when we think about our roles and our maturing in Christ. And I've tried to say this to us before as a family South City, but your discipleship, your understanding of Jesus and your ability to make him known is so important, not just to you and your family, but to the entire universe. 
God wants to use you. He wants to use us as a church in such profound ways. And I love the way uh, this mentor of mine, at least I've read a lot of his books, Paul Tripp, puts it. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, a non-delinquent kids. He says it, it's bigger than uh, beautiful gardens or nice vacations and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are a part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. When I read that, I go, yes, there's so much more about my life. There's so much more about your life and your life in Christ than just going to church or having a faith for your family. No, this is not about us, friends. God has called us. He has equipped us. He is, you're breathing breath right now for a purpose. And that purpose is greater than you. It's for the whole world. It's for the universe that the gospel of Jesus might be made known to everyone we can come in contact with. Everyone we can share this beautiful love story of Jesus with. It's so important that we see that, right? So Paul's talked to us about shared leadership and the value that we need more than one guy. We need several men and women leading in different roles. And then we talk about uh, the fact that it's important for us all to mature in discipleship to a certain point, right? Until we, probably until we die because we won't completely look like Jesus until then. But it's important that we keep moving in that direction of maturity. And then lastly, I want us to look at one last point here in the message, and that is we need to learn to speak truth in love. This is huge, friends, because Paul's saying speaking truth in love is the alternative to being childish. If, if you want to do something besides being childish, if you want to grow in discipleship, then you have to learn to speak the truth in love is what he's saying, right? Look, look with me in the text, starting at verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a, this is a big deal, church, and one that I don't think the American church has done very well. Because what it's saying is the method to growing in spiritual maturity, Paul's saying, rather than childishness, Rather than immaturity and falling for every whim or doctrine or podcast, then we need to learn to speak the truth in love to one another. Because you may have friends that are falling off the deep end and believing some of these things. You need to speak the truth in love. You may have relationships that are, that are not where they need to be and things are tense and, and weird and it's going to be hard to speak the truth. But you have to because you love. And so you speak the truth in love. In fact, the Greek, the way the Greek puts this is not even speak the truth. A better way of seeing it in the Greek is to say, we need to be truthing with our lives. Well, that's obviously not a word to be truthing, but I think you get the point. It means we're speaking the truth in love. It means we're living by the truth. It means that we are honoring the truth in, in our lives. How many times have I heard my truth or your truth and it's all stupid, it's all wrong, right? There is no my truth and your truth. That, that goes against the very definition of truth. Truth is not uh, subjective, it is objective. It is, it, is, it is true because it is true. It's a fact. 
So how do we live truthing? How do we speak the truth? How do we do that? We have to be honest with one another. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable at moments. We have to be willing to, to go deeper in our relationships and take the risk, sometimes of even hurting someone. And I'm, I only mean that to say, if they take it wrong, it might hurt them, but your heart is not to hurt them. Your heart is to make the situation better. And so sometimes we have to get into the conflict a little bit in order to resolve it by speaking truth in love with the right heart. And I, I pray that we could learn how to do this because I honestly believe this is an epidemic in the American church. I think this is a huge blind spot in the American church. We don't know how to speak the truth in love. So this is what we do. We eject. As soon as things get uncomfortable, as soon as we get to the place where we feel like, I don't think they get me. I don't think they love me. I, they, somebody said something weird to me. They ignored me. We eject. Instead, come speak the truth in love and say, hey, you said something I didn't like. Can you talk to me about it? Hey, you, you made a comment to me that hurt my feelings. I want to talk to you about it. Friends, we have to go deeper in these relationships because here's what's happening and what Paul's trying to say to us in this text. If we don't learn to speak the truth in love, then we're settling for spiritual immaturity in the church. You see that? That's why we stay spiritually immature because we're not willing to go deeper in relationship in truth. God is calling us to grow. He's calling us to be mature. He's calling us to be the force of good that he wants to use in the universe. And we, we have to learn to speak the truth and live the truth in love is a key factor to growing a healthy church family. Paul doesn't list several qualities here. He lists one, speak the truth in love. I like the way he puts it to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15, when he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. What's Paul saying? I mean, first of all, do you hear the, the majesty in, what, in this admonition to Paul, this, this direction, this directive to Paul? He's saying, if I delay, friend, make sure that you know how, how one should behave in the household of God. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about a family. This is how one should behave in the family that God has given us, which is the church of the living God. It's majestic. And then he says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. I'm sitting in this um, old building. This building is 50 years old and it's designed in a 1970s sort of a way. <laughs> it's an A-frame building and, and I'm looking at these huge wooden uh, beams that hold this huge roof up. That is like a pillar and buttress. These pillars uphold this space. And when it comes to the family of God and the, and the house of God, the church of Jesus, truth is what holds us together. We have to live truth. We have to speak truth. We have to walk in truth. In fact, I like how one commentarian said, the church is a guardian and, and proclaimer of all truth. This is what the church's role is. May we stop ejecting, stop taking an easier road and go deeper in the lives of people, relationships with people, so that we can speak truth and live truth and grow, rather than being childish, rather speak the truth and grow up into Christ. So we have unique 
gifted leaders who equip the saints. Their role is to equip, to teach, prepare. Then it's the saints' job who grow up in discipleship, maturing in Christ because of each other's gifts, working together, they're, they're building each other up, that we become the church God wants us to be, that we have this culture of truth, the truth of a, of a, uh, a value of God's word, the truth of uh, his, his directives in our life, the truth of speaking truth to one another, living in a reality of truth. This is who we have to be. This has to be the culture that we create. So friends, when, when we speak and live in the truth, this text says that we begin to grow. And that is Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3, that we grow in discipleship. And it's so important that we have different giftings, different leaders, that we as the saints, which is all of us leaders and everyone, are doing the work of ministry, making disciples, and that we speak the truth in love. And when we do those things, we begin to grow the church in love. See, love is the method, right? He says, speak truth in love. So it's the method of growing, but it's also the destination where he says, it builds itself up in love. So let love be the thing that binds us together, the love of God that he has for us in Jesus and the love of God that we have for one another, this agape love. I wanna pray for us and I pray that God would help us this morning um, to understand the value of shared leadership, the value of these apest gifts. I, I pray that God would help us as individuals in this body realize it's not on a church staff, that we're all the church staff. There is no such thing as church laity as we've spoken of it in the past. No, it's just a church with unique gifts, unique roles, and an expectation of God to be using those gifts to make him known and care for the body. That's our, that's our job. And then lastly, that we speak the truth and be equipped in these giftings together. So as we begin to grow, we build the church up in love. God bless you. Thanks for listening today.